Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, I could have said good day to all of our conservative friends <laughs> because that's where our good news comes from. In an upset, a major upset, the lefties go down in Australia, and the more right-leaning coalition comes out as a shocking winner. They hadn't led in a single poll, certainly not in the last several weeks. Most uh, predicted a very comfortable win for the lefties down in Australia, the Labor Party there. Didn't happen. Narrow win for the righties. And so we have the people we would prefer going to be leading Australia for the foreseeable future here. The editors at National Review wrote on this. Jim, you quoted at length here in the Morning Jolt today. And it says, quote, Labor sought to raise revenue through policies meant to curb global warming that would raise the energy bills of hard-pressed blue-collar battlers and also shrink their job opportunities in the country's important energy industries. That probably cost labor its hoped-for gains in Queensland, where the left has fought a long campaign to prevent the opening of a new coal mine. As former Liberal Prime Minister Tony Abbott observed, when climate change is solely a moral issue, labor wins. When it's an economic one, too, the coalition wins. The scales tip farther rightward when the voters are informed that Australia's contribution to carbon emissions is nugatory, yes, nugatory, and that the Greens don't seem interested in asking China or India to cut their much greater carbon emissions. So, uh, Jim, climate change, not necessarily the political and economic winner that a lot of lefties would like to think it is. Caution Jay Inslee. And uh, you also see some uh, parallels to American politics here as well. Uh, yeah, just a moment there, Greg. I'm going to put another shrimp on the barbie over here. <laughs> so, first of all, for those wondering, nugatory is really a word. It means of no value or importance or useless or futile. So leave it to the National Review editors to expand our vocabulary a little bit each day. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you can overstate these sorts of things. No two countries' elections are going to be exactly alike, even if they're both Western democracies. There are not perfect parallels between the parties of the left in Australia and the parties of the right in the United States. But there is kind of this dynamic here that when you're reading about these Australian elections, first of all, this is now a couple consecutive big elections in which the uh, political class, the elites, however you want to characterize them, the media coverage of it, the pollsters and everything turned out to be wrong. And it's not, I suspect, uh, oh, sinister Russian hacking or, or something like that. My suspicion is it's some variation of what we used to call the shy Tory effect, which would give you a hint. This is not something that was necessarily first diagnosed or assessed or theorized here in the United States. The idea that certain opinions have a little bit of a social stigma to them, that certain people may hold certain political views, but they don't necessarily want to publicly disclose them or discuss them because they think they're going to get attacked and criticized for it. If you're conservative, if you're right of center, there's a good chance in certain communities, your neighbors are going to give you grief about it, your friends, your family, you know. So maybe you're voting for a particular candidate or for a particular position. You don't want anybody to know about it. It looks like there's something of a recurring pattern here. I would argue probably the more likely it is that holding an unorthodox political view uh, is going to give you grief, might cause you troubles in the workplace. You might worry about losing your job or losing that next big promotion. The idea that, you know, there could be some sort of social media mob that gets stirred up and whipped up against you if you have the audacity to express an unpopular opinion on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. The more likely it is you're going to see this phenomenon in which the polls are actually understating the level of support for the conservative candidate in certain communities. The issue matrix that the left of center parties in Australia were running on, wealth redistribution, 
higher taxes. We got to take big dramatic action for climate change. Look, if you're a Democrat in the United States, this should send a shiver down your spine because this is a good chunk of what the Democratic Party is probably going to be running on come 2020, no matter which one of the what are we up to, 24, 25 candidates that are running right now. You add all of that up. This is, you know, look, again, these may be the sort of things, of course, you're supposed to care about climate change. But when somebody is proposing, hey, we're going to enact a whole bunch of new energy taxes, we're going to make it more expensive for you to pay your electric bills, we're going to make it more expensive for you to pay gas, people don't like that. <laughs> the other kind of you know, worth keeping in mind here is the possibility that support for action on climate change is very strong when it's some other guy taking the action, when somebody else is expected to sacrifice. Then I love it. But then all of a sudden, oh, wait, oh you expect me to pay for it. Oh, I'm going to have to pay higher prices. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't like that nearly as much. Um, and so if you're a Democrat, this should probably make you very nervous. Not a guarantee that things will shake out exactly the same way. But you do see this recurring pattern of a urban, you know, national capital-centered group of elites who have one school of thought, one way of thinking, and they end up being completely out of touch with what's going on in the suburbs and rural areas of the country. Jim, what I'm about to say is probably negated largely by the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. But a lot of folks on the left sometimes, depending on the issue, climate change in particular, but uh, socialist economic policies, more liberal cultural policies, a lot of times they'll try to paint the United States as being the only country left in this anachronistic position on whatever the issue is. Look at the rest of the world, the sophisticated world moving in this direction. And uh, I don't know if some folks get influenced by that. But I would think when they see other major nations putting up the stop sign to this type of political movement, it's got to be somewhat encouraging to folks who agree with us here in the U.S. You know, Greg, one of the aspects of the climate change debate down there was, you know, people wanted Australia to change its policies. There was big controversy about the construction of a new coal mine in one part of the country. You know, of course, they'd have issues with droughts, heat waves, brush fires. And, you know, the, the Labor Party believed people are going to be on our side. They can see it right outside their window. This is tangible. And it turns out, you know, that when they say we're going to enact these kinds of additional regulations and charges on us, we're not going to have the same kind of effects on China. We're not going to have the same kind of regulations on India. Lo and behold, people are like, well, wait a second. Wait a second. Why do I have to pay this? But those guys over there who are at similar levels of emissions don't have to pay theirs. Look, this is an issue where a lot of people care about it in the general sense. But once it gets to the specifics of what do you actually want to do and what kind of costs are going to be tangible to you, all of a sudden becomes a very different debate. And I think a lot of uh, Democrats have been whistling past the graveyard on this. All right, let's move to our bad martini now. And Jim, as you mentioned, there's, I think at the moment, 24 Democratic presidential candidates. And some are being thrown into various ideological camps. Obviously, Bernie's on the far left with socialist. Biden's already tacking towards the middle since he thinks he's got a big lead and he'll be more palatable in the general election. And then there's the newcomers that we're still trying to figure out that uh, initially get painted as moderates. But the more you actually listen to them, regardless of how they phrase things, they're pretty darn left uh, because they still want to win the nomination and they think that that's where a lot of the activists and the base are. And maybe to some extent they're right. Enter Pete Buttigieg, the South Bend mayor, as we mentioned when he first got in. We were somewhere around the 200th largest city in America. The crime rate's not particularly great. Not sure the economy's doing all that great. But Buttigieg is getting a lot of glowing media treatment for how polished he is, how polished his resume is. They love the fact that he's the first gay candidate to be at least considered a, a significant contender in a presidential race. But as he speaks on various issues, it's pretty clear that while he sounds reasonable, if you don't listen to the actual meaning of what he says, what he says is actually pretty far left. A couple cases in point here. Uh, last night was the Buttigieg Town Hall on 
Fox News with Chris Wallace hosting, and the issue got on to late-term abortion. Just to be clear, you're saying that you would be okay with a woman well into the third trimester deciding to abort her pregnancy. Look, the, these hypotheticals are usually set up in order to provoke a strong well, no, emotional... No, but in fairness, no, but, oh, all right, so it's not hypothetical. There are 6,000 women a year who get abortions in the third That's trimester. right, representing less than 1% of cases. I know, but, but 6,000 pregnancy. Let's take ourselves in... So let's put ourselves in the shoes of a woman in that situation. If it's that late in your pregnancy, that means almost by definition, you've been expecting to carry it to term. We're talking about women who have perhaps chosen a name, women who have purchased a crib, families that then get the most devastating medical news of their lifetime, something about the health or the life of the mother that forces them to make an impossible, unthinkable choice. And the bottom line is, uh, as horrible as that choice is, uh, uh, that woman, that family may seek uh, spiritual guidance, they may seek medical guidance, but it's, that decision is not going to be made any better, medically or morally, because the government is dictating how that decision should be made. Fascinating how he just kind of waved off 6,000 lives. But, Jim, there's also the issue of cultural renaming. Uh, he was on the Hugh Hewitt Show, uh, a show you've been on many times yourself. And the issue came up of whether the Democrats ought to rename their annual Jackson Jefferson Day dinners. Or is it Jefferson Jackson? Anyway, here's how the conversation went. Should Jefferson Jackson dinners be renamed everywhere because both were uh, holders of slaves? Yeah, we're doing that in Indiana. I think it's the right thing to do. You know, over time, you, you uh, develop. And, and evolve on the things you, you choose to honor. And, and I think we know enough, especially Jackson. Uh, you know, you just look at what basically amounts to genocide that happened here. Jefferson's more problematic. You know, there's a lot to, of course, admire in his thinking and his philosophy. Then again, if you plunge into his writings, especially the notes on the state of Virginia, you know that he knew that slavery was wrong. Yes. And, uh, and yet he did it. And here's how he thinks on the issue now. You know, naming something after somebody confers a certain uh, amount of honor. And at a a time, I mean, the real reason I think there's a lot of pressure on this is the relationship between the past and the present that we're finding in a million different ways that racism isn't some curiosity out of the past that we're embarrassed about but moved on from. It's alive, it's well, it's hurting people. And if one of the main reasons to be in politics today is to try to change or or reverse the harms that went along with, with that, um, then we'd look, we better look for ways to, uh, to live out and honor that principle. And he's also gone pretty far left on guns and the environment. And so, Jim, if you just say, stay real calm and, and real casual and take radical positions, it sounds pretty good to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, like, look, you can agree with what he said. You can disagree with what he said. I do kind of wonder if you want to say, look, racism is alive and well. And one of the reasons we go into politics is to fight against it. So what's the argument of voting in favor of Pete Buttigieg over Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or maybe even Julian Castro? You know, it's kind of like we need to end white male supremacy by electing this white male instead of that white male. One of my things that's been really frustrating about this early Democratic primary cycle has been how often certain candidates, Buttigieg may be the worst offender, but I think you can say, you know, Beto O'Rourke gets this sometimes, Tulsi Gabbard gets this, Sherrod Brown chose not to run, but a lot of the coverage before then, they keep being, well, he's more of a centrist. He's more of a (laughs) moderate Democrat. Even Biden is getting some of this. And my attitude would be, if you want to say somebody is centrist or moderate, you should be able to point to at least one or two 
issues in which they've broken with the rest of their party in which they're kind of pushing maybe in a more rightward direction instead of a more leftward direction. And in most of these cases, these guys are really hard to find. You don't see this very much. And I think it's Pete Buttigieg. She's like, first of all, I love to go, look, these cases you're describing, Mr. Wallace, they're very rare. Therefore, I don't need a position on them. <laughs> Therefore, I don't need to think about them. Well, actually, yeah, you do, because these are the cases that I think has the broadest swath of Americans saying, well, okay, look, abortion has always been this divisive issue, both before and after Roe versus Wade. But at some point, that becomes a living baby. Some would say at birth, some would say at some point before birth, some would say at conception. Look, the closer you are to birth, the more this probably should make this be a morally thorny, at the very least, you know, dynamic here, that you'd be a little troubled by the effects of what you're doing here. And in the eyes of many, many Americans is the equivalent of killing a baby, killing a child. Okay, Of course, this is the sort of thing people sit up and take notice and get mobilized about. And Pete Budetta just kind of wants to hand wave that away and say, ah, that's very rare. I wouldn't think about that very much. You don't get to have that answer. But even beyond that, my belief is a significant number of political journalists believe that moderation and centrism are entirely a reflection of your vocal tone and your hand gestures. In other words, stylistically moderate, not in terms of the actual positions that you take. And Buttigieg, as he keeps going further and further to the left, is a fantastic example of this. I also want to point out, I keep, I still see people saying things like this on Twitter and, and various other forms of social media. Well, look, if he can win in Indiana, he can win anywhere. No, okay. <laughs> South Bend is not the same cultural and political dynamic as the rest of the state of Indiana. Indiana is a very Republican state. South Bend is very Democratic, and not just the mayoral race, which is the only race he's won in his life. You look at the state legislators from there. You look at the city council. This is a very Democratic city. Now, does this mean he has no chance of winning over centrist voters, moderate Republicans, groups like that? No, but I think that's not overestimate. This is not a guy who's gone toe-to-toe with Mike Pence and won in that kind of, of territory. It is amazing how much South Bend and the rest of the state get conflated in the minds of political journalists and allegedly smart political analysts. The whole thing is to add up to an image that is way more moderate than the reality of Pete Buttigieg. He's definitely somewhere in that, you know, either bottom of the first tier, top of the second tier category. But I think that if he gets the nomination, it's going to be a a really important job for the the Republicans to argue. No, 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 no. This guy may be moderate in his tone and style, but he is not moderate in his policies. Yeah. And you mentioned Harris and Booker uh, perhaps being more obvious options when it comes to race issues for for Democratic voters. Don't forget about Wayne Messam, the other mayor in this race, current mayor of Miramar, not Miramar, California, where, of course, we know uh, the greatest contest there was Iceman versus Maverick for Top Gun Trophy in 1986. But uh, Miramar, Florida, uh, he doesn't get nearly as much attention in this race, uh, despite being the other medium sized city mayor in this race. I was about to say, oh, come on. Who's ever heard of Miramar in Florida? It's a really tiny town. Then again, South Bend ain't exactly all that big either. <laughs> yeah, if Notre Dame wasn't there, I don't think most people would probably know that much about it. But uh, being from Michigan, voting against Notre Dame is also a good enough reason to uh, <laughs> not vote for people in the All right. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And let's not move too far from South Bend. Let's move over to Chicago. Republicans there, tired of all the people from Chicago who make up a big chunk of the state legislature there, dominating all the topics that come up for debate, dominating the votes, and basically having Springfield do the bidding of Chicago. Well, Illinois Representative Brad Holbrook is tired of it. He and his friends want basically to separate the rest of Illinois from Chicago. He appeared with Steve Ducey on Fox and Friends. Why do you want to lop Chicago off from the rest of the state? 
Yeah, the majority of the legislators in the General Assembly come from one county, and um, they seem to have a fair amount of issues, and so they are mandating different things on the rest of the state to fix their issues in the state of Illinois, or in Chicago, and, and we're not having those issues like they are up here, right. and so it's just one thing after another. He also says there's a constitutional angle to this. There's a growing movement across the United States. It's happening in New York. It's happening in California, Washington, Oregon, and many other states where you have these large population centers. Um, the, the rural portions are not being uh, equally represented. Illinois is a case in point. You know, the U.S. Constitution right. uh, under Article 4, Section 4, gives us the, uh, the guarantee that we are to have a small R Republican form of government. Mm-hmm. It's simply not working in the state of Illinois. Jim, if I didn't live anywhere near Chicago but live in the state of Illinois, I'd probably be pretty fed up with the politics there myself. Um, But this is obviously going nowhere. What do you make of the effort? Yeah, look, I relate. I understand. Uh, I am sure there are a lot of people in suburbs and in rural districts and rural parts of the country all across the country who have this same dynamic. Colorado is, you know, Denver is a big chunk where the Democratic votes go. Portland, Oregon. Uh, the rest of the state is actually fairly Republican-leaning. Uh, the eastern side of, of Washington, more Republican-leaning. We actually look at California, a decent number of the eastern part of the state, more desert, uh, more rural areas are more Republican-leaning. And of course, you have these giant population centers on the coast, you know, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, San Diego. To me, Greg, trying to cut off these urban areas from the rest of the state in some sort of separatist movement, it's one step removed from Lex Luthor's plan in the original (laughs) Superman movie, which was to drop a nuke on the San Andreas Fault and have that big chunk of California just kind of float off into the sea and never to be heard of again. I kept saying it's constitutionally unsound. And look, I understand you can have a certain amount of uh, redistricting in which you try to maximize, you know, you have a whole bunch of 60-40 districts for your side and then 90-10 districts for the other side, uh, minimize their power in the state legislature and things like that. That can happen. That's frustrating. Uh, I, I notice all of a sudden a whole bunch of Supreme, state Supreme Courts are lamenting gerrymandering uh, now that Republicans are doing it. Apparently it wasn't a problem for the previous two centuries, <laughs> right. but now all of a sudden redistricting is this really important issue. This is a dynamic that, by the way, could very well end up dominating our politics in the decades to come. But you look at it, we were just talking about this in our first uh, martini, about the difference between you know urban, sometimes elite philosophies in, in big cities compared to suburban areas and rural areas. You know, this is this is the big divide. This is where most Republicans have their strength in the suburbs and, and, and rural areas. Most Democrats have all their votes concentrated in the urban areas. And this for a long time, by the way, was a major problem for Democrats. 2018 midterm elections, they did a little bit better and they managed to win back a whole bunch of these seats in the suburbs. Look, this is going to be the dynamic in every state. And I, unless you want to like turn Chicago into its own separate state, you're going to have to win in the suburbs. You're going to have to do that because otherwise, if once this ball gets rolling, you're going to see everybody trying to separate themselves from the big cities. And I just don't think that's in keeping with our traditions. You know, there is an element of compromise required. If you want to win more, one, you can try to run more candidates in these big city districts. Um, I think it's worth noting that a lot of these urban districts, Republicans, aren't, don't, they don't even nominate a candidate. Uh, and or the, if you if you want to win more votes in urban districts, you got to go there. You got to go there and try to you know make the case. And in a lot of these cases, Republicans have just flat out failed to do that. And then secondly, you win more of the suburban districts, you'll be in better shape. I can't say I begrudge these guys. I know the feeling. I'm sure there are a lot of Virginians who believe that Northern Virginia, I'm in Fairfax County, which used to be kind of the purple swing district. Now it's turning kind of blue. But guys, this is you know you can tell this is going nowhere. You're not going to separate the whole state. If anything, there's one other solution which probably should be floated around out here kind of the state-level version of federalism, 
make more decisions at the local level so you don't feel like you're constantly getting uh, the state government is not, not, is not merely a wholly owned subsidiary of the one big city uh, that dominates the state's politics. This has always been a dynamic in, in Illinois. I understand these guys are in a, a very frustrating situation, but I don't think this is going to go anywhere. And it's not, you know, separatism is not a uh, movement I'd like to see catch on here in the United States. I kind of feel like we've, we've settled most of those issues about where the state lines go now. Jim, that's clearly the intelligent argument, uh, urging more uh, decisions to be made at the local level. I'm opposed to this for two other reasons. First of all, I want to stay forever at 50 states because it makes Senate math a lot easier when you have 100 people. Yeah, you know, you know like we'd, just, we'd have to move all the stars over. It would look awkward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing, where would the Bears play? I guess they could be in a new state, but if you wanted to keep them in Illinois, you can't send them to Springfield because when they renovated Soldier Field in 2002, they went from 13 and three to a non-playoff team. So that's out. So the question, so the question is, could the Bears play in Peoria? How will they play in Peoria? That is a very big question. Greg. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Jim, have a good day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.